Good morning again, and, and if you know me, I might go till night. You never know. Uh, let's hope not, though. If you get to leave around one or two, I'm okay with that. Before then, it would be rude. So um, just keep that in mind. I'm so glad to have you all this morning. I am so excited, as I always am, to get before you with God's Word in front of me and be able to share what God has taught me throughout the week, uh, preparing and help kind of paint a picture, when I hope, of what God has in store for us over the next few weeks as we look through First Peter, this great letter written by, uh, initially, not such a great man, but who God used in marvelous ways. We're going to talk about that right away, about how God took Peter the Apostle, or Simon actually, and turned him into Peter the Apostle, this great man who the church looked to and who wrote this letter to us today for God's own words to us, that we can hear from them, learn from them, and grow in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And last week, as we got to celebrate the resurrection, there's so much built up around that, that great day that we, we look forward to every year celebrating, but also throughout the year as a church, we gather to celebrate those very things, Christ's death, his resurrection, and his life now, reigning and ruling over all of creation, the right hand of God interceding for us. So this morning, as we begin to look through First Peter, we're going to pretty much stay here. Uh, we're going to be doing a little bit of background, just kind of give you an idea of the church this day. But we're going to stay here because a lot to cover this morning. It's really a summary. So I would encourage you just to kind of get excited for what's ahead of us. But this morning, I want us to really get a picture of, of the fullness of First Peter, of how he's calling us to this hope through suffering. How our, our faith and our trust in God, our sovereign Lord, who created all things and knows us intimately and cares for us, that our trust in Him develops in us this hope that we can have through our suffering. And that through even our suffering, we can find our obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who gave it all for us upon the cross. And so this morning, I hope that we can start looking through these things and get an opportunity to see what God is doing. And so first, we're going to look at Peter. If you're not familiar with Peter, if you haven't read through the Gospels many accounts, uh, Peter initially was Simon. He was someone who God called, one of the very first uh, disciples that God did call. In fact, Andrew, his brother, who we don't hear very much about, actually brought Peter to him uh, once they'd heard. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew were all fishermen. They all had a like occupation. They were good friends even. And so Peter but very quickly rose out from the group as the leader. In the four different lists of the apostles, we see Peter named first in all four. He talks the most of anybody. He puts his foot in his mouth more often than the other. And he is seen as the leader. They look to him for all things. And in the first 12 chapters of Acts, he is the dominant figure for the church. He is the leader of this early church. And because of him, God used him miraculously to draw people to him through his sermons and through his life. But if we were there 2,000 years ago and we knew Simon before he was Peter, it would be a different story. Simon was an insecure man, a man who had rushed into things not knowing, a false courage almost. But he's a man that God saw potential in, a man that before time he foreknew and drew this opportunity uh, to lead his church and to be the rock that they needed him to be. And many people would say, as we think about the resurrection, one of the greatest apologetics or defenses for the resurrection is in fact the apostles how their transformation of the lives before it and after it came about. If you remember, Peter was the one who was denying the Lord, cursing him three times before the rooster crowed when Christ was taken away. But yet just weeks later, he was preaching boldly the name of Christ to all who would hear, standing before magistrates, defending who Christ was, not stepping back from persecution and suffering. 
Peter himself, eventually his life led to his own death, being persecuted because of Jesus. And church history tells us that he was so, uh, so much uh, humbled by the opportunity to die for Christ that he asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of being hung the same way as his Lord. So Peter was a great man, but he started out not so great. I love John MacArthur, his book, 12 Ordinary Men. Uh, it's a book I got over 10 years ago. I enjoyed reading it then. I enjoyed reading through it some this week as I was thinking about this, this apostle Peter, this ordinary man who God made extraordinary. There was nothing in him that God saw, well, this is a good guy, right? No, he chose him and drew him out to be the person that he wanted him to be. But John MacArthur is known for calling Peter the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, and he actually does this great summary of Peter's life. Because we think about Peter, we have to understand this man who was writing this letter to these people and how they respected him and why they respected him. Because Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except Jesus. No one speaks as often as Peter, and no one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so frequently rebuked by the Lord as Peter, and no disciple ever rebukes the Lord except Peter. No one else confessed Christ more boldly or acknowledged his lordship more explicitly. Yet, no other disciple ever verbally denied Christ as forcefully or as publicly as Peter did. No one is praised and blessed by Christ the way Peter was, yet Peter was also the only one Christ ever addressed as Satan. The Lord had harsher things to say to Peter than he ever said to any of the others. All that contributed to making him the leader Christ wanted him to be. God took a common man with an ambivalent, vacillating, impulsive, unsubmissive personality and shaped him into a rock-like leader. The greatest preacher among the apostles and in every sense the dominant figure in the first 12 chapters of Acts where the church, the church was born. We get a great picture of Peter. He was one of the chosen three, Peter, James, and John, who spent most intimate times with our Lord. He was there for the transfiguration of Christ upon the mountain. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, although he, he did fall asleep maybe a couple times, but he was there. And he was there to pray for Jesus. We know that Jesus had an intimate, deep relationship with these three men. So Peter, having this knowledge of Christ and the resurrection, gave him this great hope. As he led the early church with, with strength, with courage, with humility, we saw a transformed Peter. The Peter that we look to this morning as we read this letter. That he wrote to this, these churches in Asia. As we get a picture of this Peter, as we think about him, about the church, we have to understand the early church. We have to picture it and its, its sufferings, its persecution, the things they were going through, the hope that they were holding on to. See, not much has changed in 2,000 years. That's why this word of God is still relevant to us today. Because although we might have things different in, our, in the way we do things every day, the fact is our hearts are still the same. The world around us is still the same. We still fight with the same persecutions, the same things that are attacking to trials and temptations. The early church wasn't much different than us. Besides meeting in homes and, and having smaller groups possibly, they, they met for the same reasons, to edify the body. To come together and reassure and encourage each other of the hope that they had in Jesus Christ. We got together to worship our Lord just as they did. To come together and to profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and therefore our lives are for him. He has purchased us with the precious price of his blood. And now we must live a life in obedience to him. And so as we trace through 1 Peter, we're going to see themes developed. 
We're going to see themes of trust in our Father. We're going to see a theme of our suffering and how we're to deal with it. We're also going to see a theme of obedience, of how we're called to this in the midst of all that we are in. But to see the early church, to understand where they were, as they, their mindset as they read this letter from, first, from Peter, we have to understand what they're going through. It was a sporadic church, a church that was scattered throughout all of the known areas at the time. That's what we see in a second in verse 1, talk about the exiles and dispersion. The Christians had scattered because of persecution. Now, in every area of the known world, there are these pockets of Christians that were being led by, by bishops, by elders, these different men of God. But they rely on these letters to be sent around, to encourage them, to be given teaching from the apostles, from the great teachers, right? And so they would get these letters, and they'd be, they'd be curried through from place to place, and they would read them in their entirety, and they would just, just listen intently at these words, because we're going to see in a second that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, these weren't Peter's words, these were God's words to them, and they are God's words to us this morning. And the Holy Church knew that. The Holy Church was facing persecution even early on, and it only developed and got worse as different things happened, we'll see in a second. But we have to understand first that the basic policy of Rome See, Rome, as it conquered, it brought great things to all these different areas, right? Safety, road structures, a, a way of government, right? They were, they were actually, in many ways, the Roman Empire spread was beneficial to a lot of people. And as the Roman Empire grew, they would develop and basically absorb all these different religions, right? And so as they went out, they would allow these different religions to still worship their gods, or God, if they were Jews, of course. But at the same time, they required them to also worship Roman Empire, and eventually worship Caesar himself and call him Lord. The Romans were, they were a just people. They said, you can continue in your ways. We're okay with that. But you must also include Rome as part of your worship. Now, there was one exception to this rule. That was the Jews. If you know much about the Jews, the Old Testament, even through New Testament times, they're a little fanatical about their God. And for good reasons, right? God called them out. He chose them. He made them unique in who they were, but they would never worship another god. In fact, they would shed blood, and a lot of blood, before they would ever think about bowing to anybody else but their one god. And so Rome, in its uh, vast wisdom, realized maybe this isn't the best thing for us when it comes to peace. So they allowed the Jews to worship only God and not pay tribute, well, financially, yes, but not pay worship towards the emperor, or to the Roman people, or the Roman government. And so the Jews were very unique. But see, what happened was, as the Christians began, when Christ was resurrected, we see very quickly how the Jews began to separate themselves from Christianity. And as long as the Romans thought, the Romans thought that the Christians were just another sect of Jews, they left them alone. But once it came out that the Jews were basically releasing the Christians, that we are not part of them, then persecution began. Because not only now are they required to worship, but the Christians, unlike the Jews, were evangelizing. The Jews were a, a religion. They were a people. Their focus was not reaching out. Their focus was just maintaining. The Christians, because of what Christ had done in their lives, the grace in his life, as it should be for us, they went out and told the good news. But the problem with that with the Roman Empire was that as they instructed these other people to worship the one true God, Jesus Christ... They also told them to stop worshiping the emperor. And when that starts happening, things start getting messy. All of a sudden, now you're taking from the Roman Empire. The Romans weren't going to have it. 
And so the Jews, the Christians set out becoming meeting in secret more and more often. And that has caused more problems for them. We also see in the, in the early Christian culture, which is something I wish we would see more in our culture today, and this maybe is an indictment on the church, an indictment on Christianity in our Western civilization, but they stood apart differently because they were set apart. The most common word for this is hagios. It's a word that means saints, holy ones. And by living just according to Jesus' teachings, Christians were a constant, unspoken condemnation on the pagan way of life. They wouldn't outright be self-righteously speaking down or judging others. We know that Jesus' teaching to speak against that. But just their actions, just them living in light of Christ's teaching, made them an enemy. I wish we had more of that in our culture. If we had to take a poll of who really here gets persecuted for their faith, who endures suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, it might not be as much as we think. Why? Because our lives don't actually reflect the teachings of Christ. And therefore, we just become just another person in the flow. Not swimming against stream, but swimming with the stream. Saying our, our Christianity is great, but it's reserved for Sunday morning. And if we're really good Christians, maybe community group, right? But the question that we see here that it raised to me is that are we not enduring persecutions and sufferings because we're just like everybody else, just claiming a different God? Are we really living out our lives as this early church was? Because when we do that, you will endure suffering for Christ's sake. Because you will be like a sore thumb sticking out to the people around you. Of course, the Christians reject all pagan gods. Although we might not worship Zeus or any other of these Greek or, or mythological gods they would, would serve, we have plenty of idols today. Plenty of gods that we as a church unknowingly Possibly, maybe some knowingly, still worship. But the Christians were very sure of rejecting all pagan gods. And therefore, they became enemies of the human race. Because it was their job to appease the gods, right? If you're familiar with Nero and the famous burning of Rome, he blamed the Christians. Why? Because he said that because of them not worshiping their gods, the gods did this to them which led to a great persecution in which many believe both Paul and Peter uh, were martyred. But they would immediately pin anything bad on the Christians. If they had too much rain, it was a Christian's fault. Too little rain, it was a Christian's fault. No matter what happened, it was a Christian's fault because they were enemies of the human race by not worshiping these pagan gods. In the same way, they would no interaction with these people, these great parties they would have because they were all done in a sacrifice to one of their gods. And as a Christian, they could not serve and be alongside of these things. They were ostracized. They were saw as different. They were saw as boring, right? I mean, have you heard that before? I have. If you know me, I'm kind of boring. Um, so I, I, I accept that, and it's okay. But they were these people that were almost set aside in such a way that it was just a dynamic. That was just not like this current culture and time. They wouldn't be involved in the gladiatorial combats, right? Because they have the sanctity of life. They have such a fear of idolatry that even working as masons, they would be weary of, weary of making blocks because they might be used in the building of a temple of a false god. In fact, Tertullian, which was a great teacher, apologist, theologian of the early centuries, would refuse, would not allow Christians to teach because through teaching, they were required to teach of these false gods. Sound like much of our culture today? 
People sometimes ask why we choose to homeschool our children. This is not an indictment on those who do not, but there's one of the reasons why. I'm not comfortable having my children sit under the teaching of false gods, of false truths claimed to be truths, that we came from a mud puddle or whatever they believe nowadays. I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with my children being subjected to these false things taught as truth. I'm here for the purpose of bringing my children to truth. And so Tertullian would say, you cannot teach because as you teach what they want you to, you're teaching lies. You are teaching to worship these false idols. Can you bring your kids home and talk to them about it? Yeah, sure. Help them understand truth, define what is true, what is not. Of course you can. But Tertullian was very strict. Even working with the sick, you would have people walking up and down the aisles, chanting to their gods. Everything they did, slavery, sanctity of life, again, not much has changed, right? And marriage. All these things that we hold as core to the Christian life, the Greek culture and our culture mock. They take everything that we hold holy and make it unholy. And they wonder why we are so indignant to others when we disagree with their view of things. But we need more of that in love, in grace, right? Winsomely, not necessarily like some people would do. We're not Westview Baptist Church, or whatever they're called. We're not going to be hanging signs that they do. But we can approach our culture as a way to reform it, as a way to reconcile it to what Christ has done. They're also slandered because of their secrecy. They have these love feasts, agape, right? A great word of the New Testament speaking of the love that they shared and we share as the body. But they didn't understand it. The culture outside would make up their own ideas of what was going on in these closed rooms, and they weren't good ideas. They're also accused of cannibalism because what? Lord's Supper, right? Eating the body, drinking the blood. They literally thought that they were doing that. And so they were accused of being cannibalistic. Even atheistic, believe it or not, because we worship an imageless God. We do not make, create images for our God. So all these things were being thrown at the early church. They were constantly under these pressions, these persecutions and pressure of their culture. But yet they stood firm in the face of even death, which we'll see. It's amazing as we look at this, these truths. But it all boiled up to the point when Caesar himself began to be worshipped as Lord. When every single year, once a year, all people in the Roman Empire would have to come and confess before a group that Caesar is Lord. And upon that confession, they would get a certificate saying they had. And so they were okay. They would keep it on them and they would be able to then say, no, I I am a, a friend of the Roman Empire. I'm a friend of Caesar. But of course, a Christian can never bow their knee to anyone else but Jesus, which led to some of the greatest persecution that they'd ever seen. But again, you might say that that was them, right? Here we are now. We're not facing that. A lot of these things, I hope you hear and say, well, no, that's not true. We are. We're a lot more like the early church than we might think. And even today in our culture, maybe not in in America, but across the world, our brothers and sisters are dying for Christ's name. They need this hope of eternity. They need this hope of the resurrection. But we need it too. Because daily we are called 
to carry our crosses. Daily we are called to go out into this world and reconcile. And through that we will endure suffering. We will endure persecution. So how do we find this hope? How do we look to Christ with fullness? Knowing that he is there with us to encourage us. Because he has walked the path before us. That's this morning I hope as we walk through 1 Peter... In the next few months, we, we go verse by verse, and we'll start to see these things come alive. As we see ourselves in these letters, that we can find this great hope that they had that's still alive and relevant to us today. This morning, we're going to be in First Peter, of course. Uh, we're just going to be reading verses 1 and 2, kind of a, a, an introduction, a greeting of Peter. We're going to look at that and kind of help find ourselves identity of who we are in Christ, of who Peter saw the church as they were in Christ. And from that, kind of walk through First Peter briefly to get an idea of what we have in store as we look through these, these, this great letter written 2,000 years ago almost. So if you're with me, we're in First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, this morning, God, I pray that you would help us to see truth. God, to know it and to hold to it. God, to not be led astray by this world and its, its own desires. But God, to put those to death, Lord, seeking you in all things. And that we would find our identity in who Christ is. That we are in him, Lord. And God, as we think of how you took a man like Peter, a common man, no real training, God, but made him the leader of the earlier church. God, so you can take us. God, and make us great. Lord, for your name and your glory. And God, we think of the early church. Lord, help us to see ourselves there, Lord. Help us to put ourselves in that position, God. And I pray that we would be put in those positions. God, that our faith would be tried. God, for perseverance. God, for us to learn, to put our faith even more in you. God, I pray this morning our hope we found in you and you alone. And God, through our sufferings, God, you refine us, Lord, and grow us to the church that you desire for us to be. God, we thank you for this letter. God, we thank you for your sovereignty in it, God, that you brought it to us, that you made a way for it all these years later to have in front of us in our language so we can know it, God, and read it. We thank you for that. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for your power and your spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So we look at these verses, and we will be brief. We see in, in right here going on that Peter addressed himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you read the New Testament, this is the only office that adds to it of Jesus Christ. And this is Peter's proclamation of his own authority as an apostle, but also that these words were in fact God's words to them. Not just a, a person writing a letter, but these were God's very words. As an apostle, just like a prophet, they were speaking God's words to his people. So Peter's speaking these words from God to them and to us. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He's trying to paint a picture of knowing who they are and having them understand who they are. I don't really prefer the word exiles. Um, an exile is one really who is being barred from a native country. Uh, these are really more uh, we see in chapter 2 of a sojourner. 
I think it better encapsulates what we're trying to be said here. But he says in verse 11 of chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, sojourner is someone different. It's someone who's temporarily staying somewhere besides their home. And so we want to think of this, this verse and the beauty of it is that we see that they are elect exiles, elect sojourners, those chosen by God for his purposes to sojourn here on earth, awaiting their time in heaven. We had to be in seeing our picture that this is not home for us. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we must encourage each other and remind each other, this is not it. This is temporary. Eternity is where we're supposed to be looking. And we focus on the temporal, yes, persecution, suffering, it will wear you out. It will weigh you down because this is all we have. And, and many people will teach you this is the best we have to come. It's right now. And so when things don't go our way, we get overwhelmed. But if we understand this is just passing through, that our true home is with Christ forever in eternity, and we can look differently on this world around us. We can begin to see our identity as this. So to us who are chosen by God to be sojourners, those who are wandering in this unknown world waiting for our eternal home of the dispersion. Dispersion was linked to the Old Testament when the Jews were, were scattered, right? They were scattered from, from their homeland and, and made to all different places. Peter here is kind of talking to the Gentiles who he's writing to, is encouraging them, kind of bringing them into the fold, saying we are all part of this dispersion. We are all part of the same people of God. And he was writing to people in Asia, an area that was full of letters that Paul um, had written to. In fact, I have a little map to kind of give you a picture of these things and see where they were and what they were doing. But this is, of course, at their time. You see on the right side, that's where he was writing to, Asia, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, Kibbutz. Cappadocia. We see all these different churches mixed along here. The church of Colossae, Ephesus, the Philippian church was there, local. This was kind of the hub of Christianity. It's where all these things were happening. It's where all this great persecution was breaking out. In fact, if you're used to uh, Revelations and the letters to the, the broken churches there, all the churches, the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church, is actually just north of Ephesus. So really there's much going on in this region. There's a lot of persecution, and Peter's writing to them to encourage them. As they are spread about, that they are all part of something. He gives them an identity as those chosen by God, where they are, to be part of something bigger than themselves. I think it's something we all have to remember as we approach this world, our lives, that we are not on our own, that we are part of something bigger. We gather together as a church to proclaim this truth that we are the body of Christ. And we see in chapter 2 that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. But that's for another day. So we are here as chosen ones, not at home, but together as this dispersion to preach the good news of Christ. And then Peter helps us with this truth. He goes, think of these things, right? You are living in persecution. You are living in suffering. You are spread out waiting for this eternal home. But all of this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Our Father who loves us, who cares for us, who is intimate with us, who is in control of all things as a sovereign God. This is all according to his plan. 
Every bit of suffering you go through in obedience to Christ is part of his desire to form you, to grow you, to hone you. It's an amazing picture as we start thinking of suffering in that picture. As seeing ourselves as, as God's children lovingly being brought to maturity by his knowledge and his, and his love. So it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, which means brought into maturity, right? Holiness. The root word in sanctification is the same word as saints, hagios, the holy ones. He's saying that it's because of the foreknowledge of God that these things are here, and it's all for your sanctification. It is for your growth. It's for your maturity. It's for obedience. For who? For obedience to Jesus Christ. All these things are working for a purpose. Our trust in God gives us hope through our suffering. That what Christ has done accomplishes for us and for obedience to Jesus Christ. And for sprinkling with his blood. This might not be something we're used to hearing, but if you were a Jew or if you knew of the Old Testament, it would be very common. Any skin uh, disease might happen, especially leprosy, uh, would need the sprinkling of blood on it as part of the ritual for cleansing. And if you were not familiar with the way things were when you had leprosy, you were required to, as you walked around town, say, unclean, unclean, so people would know to keep their distance. It created a, a, a gap, right? It created this distance between the people. And so in the same way, I love this because Peter's saying that all these things, God's foreknowledge, bring us to maturity in Christ through the Holy Spirit so we may be obedient to his word. But also, guess what? And for continuous sprinkling with his blood. He knows we're going to mess up. He knows that we're going to constantly need Christ's blood interceding for us. So that although we would have to walk our life saying unclean, unclean, we can instead come to him through the power of Christ's blood to regain that relationship that he desires to have with us. I love the hope that we see just in these first two verses of knowing that these things are intended by God to bring us to him for his glory and our joy. And for us to know that it's not on us, that we are going to fail, but yet we always have Christ there for us with the sprinkling of his blood to assure us and to bring us back into the right relationship with God. So Peter ends this section with the greeting with, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May God's unmerited, undeserved favor and the peace that we have, knowing that we now stand right before God because of Christ's blood, grow in you. Let that be the foundation on which, as we look through 1 Peter, we stand upon. That this is who we are as children of God, those called into this for a purpose, for a plan bigger than ours. A plan from our loving Father. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And what's beautiful about that, it's not because of us. We are part of the process, of course, 100%. Because we're called to it. But it's because of what Christ has done. We keep looking to that as our hope. We keep looking to him and the cross as we move forward in this life. And so we see this identity that we have as those patiently waiting for a home, for our eternal home. And it helps us to kind of unwrap ourselves um, from, from the world around us. A few weeks ago, as Tim was speaking in Psalms, talking about the need to kind of step away from the news, 
for a week and how relief that brought him. It reminds me, for me personally, the same thing. So many times you get so wrapped up in, especially these times of years, with who's in charge or who's not in charge, what's happening across the sea through different lands, and we, get, we can get worried and anxious, right? And we read about what's happening in North Korea, what's happening in Syria, all these things, and we start allowing it to can just weigh down upon us. We have to remember that this is not our home, that we are here in God's perfect plan, His time, for a purpose, to be His people, to be holy as He is holy, and to go and tell the world of His great love. Looking forward to the day that we come to Him in fullness, persevering to the end what Christ has done. And so as Peter addresses us there, he, he gives us kind of a landscape of the letter. He reminds us right away that we have a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is who we are. This is our hope. And though we will have trials, right away in verse 7 we already see that. It will refine our faith. As we're studying, or we're going through James in our community, the very first thing we talked about, how our trials, our temptations, produce in us something more. They give us the faith to trust in God. There's a purpose for them. And as Deshaun read in Romans 5 earlier, the same thing. That our sufferings eventually produce in us this hope. It's God's intentions to grow us, to define us through these things, and to bring us closer to Him in obedience. So many times if our outlook is wrong, we take our sufferings and our sicknesses and we think, oh God, what? But you loved me. We forget that he's using these in it for us and not against us. But it requires us seeing our God as a God who loves us. But because of our salvation, our faith, it generates obedience. We should desire to be holy. We're going to see that happen in verse chapter 1. But we're going to see quickly as Peter moves through that we are created to be a living stone. With Christ as the cornerstone, our capstone, the one who all foundations built upon, we also are called to be a living stone. In verse 5, it says, chapter 2, is you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verses 9 and 10, the same chapter, he talks about this again, how we are called to be a chosen race. Remember that? We are chosen. We've been called for a purpose, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a chosen people. We desire that, right? As humans, we need that. We know we need to belong to something. So we're to try to find it through other things. But God is saying now he has been called us together as his chosen people for his purposes. We can trust him. We can be obedient to him because we know these things. As we walk through 1 Peter, we're going to see again that we're going to see him taking his truths understanding our identity, that we are this chosen race, we are this priesthood, we are these people who are living stones, called to his purpose, to see how we now live in response to our authorities, 
as masters and slaves, husbands and wives, church members, neighbors to each other and to all those around us. All of these things when we walk into helping us to apply this identity reality for us to everyday life and how we live our lives in this world and the already but not yet. We are stewards of God's grace. And as we are, we need to understand how to handle suffering. We will show the world Christ when we show the world him in us as we handle life in a unique way, as we are set apart and are seen as different. We have to be that light to the world. That's what we're here for. And that's why our our mission is that, to go and tell. We believe that. Tim and I can't save the city. We all together are called to be this priesthood, to go to this world individually in our lives, through our work, through our school, through our interactions, and all that we do to be a city on a hill so that people may know what Christ has done in our lives. But it requires us to have that. He also gives instructions to elders and the young men of the church as they grow up in maturity and, and, and are humble to, are humble to uh, those in charge. But at the very end, we're going to see that our, we need to put our trust in God, resist the devil, and remember that we are not alone in our suffering. That as we go through life, that we go together, side by side, Knowing that as we endure persecution, suffering, trials, temptations, that our brothers and sisters in Christ here and around the world are going through the same things. Which is why we gather, to again, to encourage each other, to edify, to teach, to equip us to approach these things in life. So we're not on our own. We are God's people called together for his purposes. Philippians, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 4.19 kind of is this perfect summary of these main themes, though. I want to read it. It'll be on the screen. It says, therefore, talking about all these things, about being stewards of God's grace and suffering as Christians, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We see here, summarized in this one verse, these main themes. We will suffer. We're going to suffer according to our loving Father's will. And we can trust Him. And from that, we will be called to obedience. That while all these things are happening around us, that we will do good. And our example will be, of course, Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 19. We'll end with this. For this is a gracious thing. Again, talking about Suffering, even when things are going, we're doing the right things. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. His faith and trust was in his father. He would judge. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have this great hope, and we have a great example, the perfect example of Christ to live towards. As we walk through 1 Peter, I'm looking forward so much, I know Tim is, of going through these, with, and taking time in these sections, really start to unwrap these truths and help us to see the beauty of what this is going to look like in our lives as we are called to this, this life that we're putting before us. But I'd like to give us kind of another example, because let's be honest, none of us uh, are going to meet Jesus' example fully, right? But we can look at men in our history, church fathers who, who, who preached these truths and stood true. Uh, Polycarp was a second century pastor, theologian, kind of the teacher of Asia, the very area that, we, that Peter wrote this letter to. He was one of the most well-known. He wrote this about, in one of his letters to the Philippians, he wrote these very words. He wrote, Let us therefore without ceasing hold fast by our hope and by the earnest of our righteousness, which is Jesus Christ who took up our sins in his own body upon the tree, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, but for our sakes he endured all things, that we might live in him. Let us therefore become imitators of his endurance. And if we should suffer for his name's sake, let us glorify him. For he gave this example to us in his own person, and we believe this. This is Polycarp, a man like us, a man living in one of the greatest persecuted areas and during the most highly persecuted times. When a Christian would be called to give allegiance to Caesar, and if not, possibly face death. If you know Polycarp, which I'm sure you all do, uh, he actually was martyred. Uh, Polycarp served as the perfect example of living out these very things in his life. As they were searching for him, the Roman authorities, they finally came to him, and his brothers and sisters encouraged him to run and hide. But Polycarp knew that it was his time. And so he submitted and gave himself over to the authorities. As he entered the arena with the crowds there, cheering for his death. The governor asked him, simply swear by Caesar. So simple, right? I mean, can't you just cross your fingers behind you and go, let's use the Lord, and then I was just joking? This seems so easy. Polycarp replied, I am a Christian. Now, if you want to know what that is, set a day and listen. The governor encouraged, well, persuade the people then. Polycarp said, I would explain to you, but not to them. So the governor threatens, and I'll throw you to the beast. <laughs> Polycarp says, bring on your beast. You try to frighten me. Oh, he goes, okay, if you scorn the beast, I will have you burned. Polycarp replies, you try to frighten me with the fire that burns for an hour, and you forget the fire of hell that never goes out. The governor called the people. Polycarp says he is a Christian. The mob let loose. This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods. So Polycarp, praying that his death would be an acceptable sacrifice, was burned at the stake. The scene is real. These things happen. These things still happen. 
What gave him this hope to endure such suffering? What would give a man the ability to stop and pray this prayer, which we have because of the wonder of God, his love for us, would pass this down? He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of thee, the God of angels and powers and of all creation and of the whole race of the righteous who live in thy presence. I bless thee for that thou hast granted me this day and hour that I receive a portion amongst the numbers of martyrs in the cup of Christ unto resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and of body, and the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among these in thy presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as thou didst prepare and reveal it beforehand and hast accomplished it, thou that art the faithful and true God. For this cause, yea, and for all things, I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee, through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, through whom with him and the Holy Spirit be glory both now and for the ages to come. Amen. What brings a man to that? As he's not nailed to a post, he's tied. He says, I'm not running. I'm willing to take the sacrifice. History would tell us that as they lit the fire, that the fire burned around him like an oven. The flames could not touch him. You can believe what you want to believe. But those there in the presence, his followers, said that it was like a a bread being baked. And from it, this incense would rise. They remembered that, and they would tell their brothers and sisters of that day. And the flames never touched him. They had to reach a dagger and a stick through the fire to finally kill him. God was protecting him as an example. Yes, he died. Could God have saved him? Of course he could. But Polycarp went there knowing it was for God's eternal plan. And he blessed God for the opportunity because he knew of what Christ had done. That his hope was in the example that was set before him. And he knew that one day Christ, who reigns and rules over all things, would make all things new. He could stand knowing that God is in control and that we can trust him. That though we suffer, through that suffering brings obedience to our Father. Revelations 12, 10 through 11. As the woman and the dragon come and Satan is thrown down, so I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. This is our hope through all of our suffering. That Christ indeed has come. He has died. He has risen again. He sits with authority over all things, interceding for us to our Heavenly Father who loves us and is using all things for our good and His glory. And one day, He will make all things right, make all things new. And as Christ allowed to be 
suffered, ridiculed. And First Peter says he did it knowing that the just justifier, our God, would make all things right. Why revile? Do for God what he calls you to. We're going to do it by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, that Christ is Lord. He is sovereign. And he has died for us. This morning, I hope, as we think about these truths, as we respond in song, as we think about our, 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 our Father who loves us and, our, and the Son who has died for us and now sits interceding for us, that we can see his example for us and the example of our, of our church fathers and those in history and those today who are still in life down for us, that we grow in the beauty of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, I thank you so much for this morning, God. I pray, Lord, even now as we look through these things, God, you would give us a, a hope, Lord, and a desire to learn more. God, that we would uh, see in what Peter's writing these letters years ago, God, how they could still apply to us and grow us in faith. God, that we would grow and trust you, God, that you are using these things for our good. God, that we would be able to help our hope in suffering, because Christ has suffered for us, God, as an example. And that God, you would bring us to obedience. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth in it. God, I thank you that we can rest in you. And God, this morning, I pray that we would remember these things, God, as we approach life's hard trials, Lord. That, God, we can overcome. We will overcome. God, because what Christ has done, we are guaranteed that. So, God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for this hope we have. Lord, help us now as we just think through these and reflect and respond. God, help us do it with a joyous heart. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.